Well, good morning, everybody. Ah, no worries, no worries. All right, well, good morning. Um, see some new folks, up, new faces over here. Hello. My name's Fred. <laughs> yes. Been to your house, met them at your house. Excellent. Um, well, as you can see, uh, today we're going to be talking about the Canons of Dort. Um, now, who know, who's ever heard of the Canons of Dort? A handful of folks? Okay, cool. Um, don't worry, it's, it's not, you know, a big mysterious thing. It's a, a little, uh, it's a, essentially a document that comes from, you know, about four or five hundred years ago in, in, in church history. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that is, I think, very enlightening in terms of the study that we're undertaking right now in, in, in terms of the, the, uh, the doctrine of salvation. Okay? So I'll give you the context and what it's all about here you know, as, we go, as we go through the class. So um, I was thinking about you know, kind of opening with the joke, it's canons of dork, not canons of dork. Right, so we're not talking about Star Wars and Harry Potter, but as you can see, um, Taylor doesn't like that joke. It's not 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 funny. Good, you're right. So that's why I didn't tell it. Right. So let's pray, and then we'll get started with the canons of Dort. All right, Father, thank you uh, once again for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and to uh, study uh, uh, your word, study, um, understand who you are, and. Uh, and as we go through this series that we're in right now, the, uh, uh, the salvation that you have provided for us. Father, we love you. We trust you. Um, help us to glorify you in everything that we think and say and do as we go out uh, throughout this class. And then um, forgive us where we fail you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> before we jump into the canons of Dort in particular, what I want to talk about is the concept of creeds and confessions and catechisms, um, kind of in general, uh, because the, the you know the question is you know we're a we're a Bible church we we study the Bible um, the vast majority of the time you know in uh, in Sunday school we're diving into to God's Word uh, we're studying Scripture and then you know of course from the pulpit we do expository preaching week in and week out. And so the idea here is, is why would we go and study uh, a document um, or an, an event from, from church history, okay? So what I want to do is kind of lay out um, the idea and the importance of this sort of thing, um, just kind of from the beginning, because there's other creeds, confessions, and catechisms um, that, that have been created throughout church history that are important. Uh, Dort is not the only one. There's some some others, and so I would just want to talk about the basic concept of these things um, uh, before we get into Dort in particular. So, what is a, cre a creed, and what is a confession? And when I say that, I don't mean in terms of a confession. I don't mean going before a priest and confessing sins or anything like that. What I'm talking about is the um, uh, the documents that are creeds and confessions. So, anybody? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, when you think of the verse, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? To confess uh -huh. is to, to state that something is true. Okay. So, a creed is usually 
Yeah. Hold on, let me catch up with you. So a, a creed is something that you're stating that you believe, okay? And so, for example, Jesus is Lord would be an example of a, a very, 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 very short creed. And then, um, and then you said uh, creeds, as we're talking about in this context here, are like documents that record these things. Is that what you're saying? Okay, cool. Now keep going. And usually a creed is a, a few paragraphs or less. Okay. Okay, excellent. So a creed is a short statement, shorter statement, maybe a few paragraphs, like the Nicene Creed was roughly three paragraphs. Um, and then a confession is something that's longer, kind of that, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, very great answer. And you just covered about five bullet points, so I appreciate that. No. So we're going to break that down a little bit. Um, so both are statements of faith. Uh, but like Hannah said, you know, in terms of the difference, she, she, she tackled it um, head on. The, some of the key differences between creeds and confessions, and, and I think you can blur the lines a little bit, but by and large, creeds tend to be shorter than confessions. Um, for example, the Apostles' Creed um, is about 115 words. Now, who, who here has heard of the Apostles' Creed, Right? Who, who here has uh, used the Apostles' Creed in at least parts of it in worship? Everybody that goes to Trinity needs to raise your hand. Because there's a song by the Gettys called We Believe. And We Believe is about 90% of the Apostles' Creed. And so if you, you, you know, we believe, I'm not going to sing it. So um, anyway, go ahead. No, no, it's okay. Grab your horn. You can, you can play the melody, right? All right. So, so yeah, so there's the Apostles' Creed that, um, that, that I think it comes from third or, fourth, third or fourth century. It wasn't actually written by the Apostles, but it's the most basic um, understanding of, 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 of God, of, of the, the Christian message. Um, then we have the Nicene Creed. Now, who knows anything about the Nicene Creed? Well, if you've been in this class for any length of time, you need to raise your hand because we talked quite a bit about the Nicene Creed um, last year. The Nicene Creed was, um, was a creed that articulates uh, the basics of the doctrine of what? Sorry? Trinity. The Trinity, exactly. It talks about um, uh, Jesus Christ as being divine. It talks about the Holy Spirit as being divine. Um, and kind of some other parts, you know, some other kind of details around that. And so the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are two creeds, probably the, the two most famous that we have. Then in terms of confessions, probably the, the most famous is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now I put, not that word counts are really that important, but I put word counts up here. You can compare 115, 226 to 12,000, Okay. So the Westminster Confession of Faith is about 12,000 words long, and it's um, uh, about 33 chapters, okay? And it was written in early, six, no, late 1500s, is that correct? Yep, okay. 
forgot to put a date on there. Um, so creeds tend to be more basic or foundational than confessions. So what I mean by that, well, and then let me throw the next bullet point too. Creeds tend to be more universal than confessions. And so what I mean by that, if you look at the creeds that, um, that, that Orthodox Christianity has adopted over the last 2,000 years, they tend to be very basic statements of faith. They're things that really, whether you're Presbyterian, Baptist, Lutheran, or, or even Catholic, that you can, you can agree on. Um, it's the identity of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that sort of thing, okay? So creeds tend to be very, very basic uh, or foundational, and then confessions tend to be more detailed. They tend to be a little bit, uh, well, actually considerably longer. So they go into, um, like the Westminster Confession of Faith goes into all the different details of, of um, church government, um, eschatology, which is a study of the end times, all these, they tend to be a lot more comprehensive, okay? So creeds are often used in worship, like we do here at Trinity, confession, well, with the Apostles' Creed anyway, and confessions are used to declare doctrinal statements. You probably wouldn't create a, sing a song that went through the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, if you did, it would be longer than Freebird, right? All right, so... Next question, what is a catechism? And I'm looking for an answer from the middle and right side of the room. You might tell me what a catechism is. Uh, like a summation of beliefs. Okay. Okay. Good, you're, you're definitely on to something, right? So it's, uh, it's um, kind of plainly stated beliefs, right? Um, more for the people, right? So what it is is catechesis, it's a form of instruction um, that involves the oral recitation of information. So like you said, so the idea there is a catechism is the sort of thing that generally is meant to be memorized. You don't really want to memorize the Westminster Confession of Faith, but a catechism like, for example, um, the Westminster Divines took the Westminster Confession of Faith and they put it in a question and answer format um, called the Westminster Larger Catechism. And it, it is ordered in such a way that you could go through it and you, like, if, uh, if I'm trying to teach Stuart the Westminster Confession, then I'll, I'll go to question number one and I'll ask him, um, you know, what is the chief end of man? And he'll respond. Well, how, how would he respond? To glorify, to glorify God and joy him forever. Then you go into question two, and I have no idea what question two is. I just know what question one is. Um, but with, with a, a, a catechism, it's that sort of thing. It's, it's arranged so that um, you can, uh, it's arranged in such a way as to be conducive to teaching somebody the truths of, or the, the confession of, um, of a confession, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, okay? Um, Martin Luther, again, Stephen brought up Martin Luther, he popularized the whole question and answer format. Um, they don't always have to be question and answer, but he, he popularized that, and that's the most popular um, one that I'm aware of right now. 
So what are some examples of catechisms? Already, you know, again, um, Stephen brought up Luther's catechisms. He has a large and a small. Um, what do you think the small one is for? Children, exactly. What they did is they took the large catechism and then they kind of boiled it down and, and simplified it a bit so that children could understand it. Um, there's the Heidelberg Catechism, and then there's the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. Um, again, the, sh the Shorter Catechism is, uh, is meant more for, for, for children. So, question, and I'm going to throw it out there. How does the use of creeds and confessions jive with the concept of sola scriptura? If we, if we, as, where is it? Right over there, sola scriptura. If we believe in scripture alone, then how does studying a creed or confession jive with that? I think it's just important understanding of scripture. Okay. Um, it gives a good helps us to okay. understand a lot of foundational principles. Okay. It, it supports it. Helps us understand foundational principles, that that sort of thing. Yeah. So the and that's good. So the first question I'll ask is, well, what is sola scriptura? In in a sentence, scripture alone is what? Authority. authority. Is it authority, or is it final authority? Yes. Good. Randy's right. It's final authority. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And the answer is the Holy Scriptures. Yes. So how does it jive? Well, a good confession or catechism could say scriptures alone is, is where we receive uh, information from God about what we should believe and what, how we should live and how, how we should be saved. Excellent. So a good confession will point to scripture. A good confession will what? Teach scripture, right? And as she pointed out, specifically, uh, question two, which I didn't know three minutes ago, two minutes ago. Um, question two of West, the Westminster um, Catechism points to Scripture as the only infallible source of God's revelation. Okay, So the idea there is, is that <clears throat> we have to make sure that we don't take sola scriptura too far. And what I mean by that is it is our only final authority. It is our only source of divine revelation, but it's not our only authority. And what I mean by that is we can look at church tradition. We can look at, at church history. We can look at um, confessions and, and what teachers have, have um, gleaned from, from scripture as some level of authority. There was a, a couple of years ago where, you know, the elder board, we were meeting, and we were struggling with um, a scriptural answer to a question. And it just, it, it wasn't clear. And so what we did was we went through church history and tried to stand on the shoulders of giants going all the way back 2,000 years to try to understand how the church, church leaders, God-fearing men for, you know, again, 2,000 years have answered these questions and then how they treated them. And then we were able to come to a pretty reasonable conclusion on that, okay? 
So what um, the idea is that Scripture is, is our only final authority. It's sufficient for understanding um, how to live a godly life in terms of the information that we need in order to, to please God. But there are going to be details in there that there's going to be some, some things where we're going to have to um, resort to other, other um, means or sources or whatever to, to try to answer some specific questions. Okay? It doesn't mean that, that Scripture is not sufficient. It absolutely is. But what is it sufficient for? And it's sufficient for living a godly life. Okay? And it's much more than that, but that's, that's what um, uh, sufficiency of Scripture um, entails. All right. So Michael Reeves, um, if you don't know who Michael Reeves is, he's, uh, I, I like him a lot. And I've actually um, taught a lot of his stuff as we go, th go through this class. Um, he's still alive, but I'm not going to hold that against him. Um, so anyway, what he says about, about this question, he says, a confession is not an extension of Scripture, as if it were God's Word itself. It is a human response to God's Word, an acknowledgement that He has spoken. As such, we value a, conf a confession only to the extent that it is faithful to Scripture. Thus, a confession uh, is to be assented to wholeheartedly as a confession of God's truth only when it accu accurately declares the truth of Scripture. Okay, and I think, I think he said that really well. All right, so with that background, what we're going to do is begin to look at the canons of Dort. So, um, any questions so far? Nope? Okay. <sighs> Let's see. Okay, so the Canons of Dort, it's a short confession uh, coming from an international synod of Reformed church leaders held in Dortrecht, uh, Netherlands in 1618 through 1619. I think they uh, convened in like November of 1618 and then they, they wrapped up in like May of, of 1619. So it was about six or seven months. Um, this international synod, it... It was primarily churches, church leaders from uh, the Netherlands area, but also folks were there from um, England, Switzerland, and uh, Germany. So the Synod's main purpose was to resolve a theological controversy um, called Arminianism, brought about by the followers of Jacob, Jacob Arminius, who we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. And it concerns the way in which believers receive the benefits of, of Christ. So the work is polemic in nature. What does polemic mean? Good. So a polemic is written against something. Think of it as almost it's an argument against something. When I think of a polemic, I think of an argument, right? So it's written against... Uh, this Arminian theology, and it articulated Calvinistic beliefs in direct rebuttal of Arminian, Arminianism. The work is not uh, a comprehensive confession, so it doesn't cover everything. It doesn't cover the end times. It doesn't cover church government. It doesn't cover all that. It doesn't even really, you know, it assumes the Trinity. It doesn't really cover the Trinity. Um, but it's a comprehensive confession, or it's not a comprehensive uh, confession since it only covers the topics that were in dispute, which is around salvation. Okay. 
So remonstrance, shremonstrance, right? So when, when you're reading and you're seeing these different spellings, it can get, I, I just want to clarify this before we go into the timeline. So you have this verb remonstrate. Does anybody know what that means? Mean? Anybody know what that means? Okay. It's to forcibly protest. Okay. So a remonstrate, uh, to remonstrate is to forcibly protest. What do you think a remonstrant is? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a person who remonstrates. Okay, so what are remonstrants? It's a group of more than one remonstrant, and then here's why I'm showing this. Remonstrants, what do you think that is? It's a document. It's a document published by the remonstrants, right? So one guy um, that I was reading had a chapter, and it said um, the remonstrants with a TS remonstrated against the remonstrants with a, a CE. And it was like, so that's why we call this the canons of dork, I guess. I don't know. Um, so also known as the five articles of the remonstrants of 16, um, 1610. All right. So with that out of the way, now let's talk about a little timeline here. So 1559, Jacob Arminius is, is born. Um, <clears throat> no, uh, John Calvin lived from... Uh, 1509 to 1654, right? So if you do the math, um, you know, Calvin was 50 years old when Arminius died. So no, the two did not debate. Can you see that okay? What did I say? Oh, right. 1559, 15, yeah I, I, yeah, I messed something up there. Well, regardless, <laughs> ignore the numbers. Uh, <laughs> Calvin was 50 when, when, um, Arminius, uh, when Arminius was born, so no, the two did not debate, right? And he, yes, sir? 1564. Okay, okay, excellent, thank you. So he was an old man when, uh, uh, when Arminius was born. Now, the reason I say that is because Jan and I, our first church, um, you know, I started, we started going to church in, in, in 2004. Um, I'd never heard of Jacob Arminius or John Calvin or any of this stuff, right? And so I started, um, we started studying the Bible and going to, you know, Bible studies and, and, and things of that nature and came to have, I'll just say, a particular, uh, we're drawing particular theological conclusions um, that were consistent with what we're, what we're going to be talking about today. Um, meanwhile, our pastor, um, about two years in, so this is around 2006 or so, did a series um, from, you know, from the pulpit on Sunday morning called, um, it was like two or three weeks, and it was called Why I'm Not a Calvinist. And he began his, um, this, this series, almost one of the first statements that he made was, um, this all comes, you know, back 500 years ago, these two guys, Jacob Arminius and John Calvin, were debating one another. You know, and it was just, it, and then it, it got worse from there, I guess you could say. So, 
the reason I say that is there's a lot of folk theology. There's a lot of misunderstandings about exactly what it is that we're talking about when we talk about these, these doctrines, okay? And so I just, I, I wanted to point that out because a lot of people do believe that Arminius and Calvin were in a debate. They never knew each other, okay? All right, so 1573, William of Orange adopts the Reformed faith in the Netherlands. Um, so this is where you have the Dutch Reformed um, church. And then um, nine years later, Arminius begins studying theology in Geneva under Theodore Beza. Who is Theodore Beza? <laughs> no, that's, that's Jeff Beza. Yeah. Or Jeff Bezos. Yeah. What's that? Exactly. Yeah. He was, he was John Calvin's successor in, in, uh, in Geneva. Okay. Um, so what that means is um, our Jacob Arminius was actually reformed. And if you go to the, like the Wiki, Wikipedia article on, his, uh, on who he is, then it actually says he's a reformed theologian. He's just a different kind of, I don't know. I don't know what, the, what word to throw in there. So anyway, Arminius, Arminius uh, in 1588, he's ordained in the Reformed Church of Amsterdam. And then 1592, um, he begins teaching on Romans, Malachi and then Romans, and this causes controversy. And we're going to look at just one of the passages and the way he interpreted it um, right after we do, do the timeline here. Um, so anyway, but this is kind of where the, the troubles began. He began diverting from the, the, the Reformed church or Reformed teaching. So in 1603, Arminius is appointed professor at Leiden University. Now, this is a big deal because, you know, you know, if a pastor is teaching poor or false theology, same thing, I guess, um, to um, a church, now that's bad enough, right? Because people, people are hearing bad theology, right? But how much worse is it if a professor at essentially a seminary is teaching bad theology? It's actually worse because who's he teaching? Future pastors. So while Randy may teach heresy, you know, at one church, okay, um, if he goes to a, takes a professorship at a university, um, his, um, his false theology is actually going to potentially replicate to dozens or hundreds of churches, right? So this, this reason I point this out here is when he takes a professorship at Leiden University, all of a sudden the stakes go higher. Again, it's bad enough at a local church, but it gets um, really bad at a, a university. And these are younger folks who tend to be a lot more zealous, okay? Arminius was a a pretty gentle guy. Um, he really wanted to engage in conversation, so we need to give him that benefit. Um, but, and he wanted to engage in debate, but his, the, the folks that he taught were younger, more zealous, and um, they didn't have the patience that, that he did. And then in 1609, he actually passed away. And um, no reason to doubt that he's not with the Lord, you know, um, it's uh, he, he taught an aberrant theology, but I, 
you know, he, he was a believer. Fred. Yes, sir. Right. Well, what what happened was there was uh, a meeting essentially um, where he he kind of worked it out with one of the um, the heads of one of the departments, and then there were actually two key professors that died at, at Leiden, and they were kind of the 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 guard, right? And when when they died, it kind of softened the the position that they were taking, and he was able to get the. Uh, the professorship. Yeah. So then, a year after he died, 43 of his followers uh, signed and published the Remonstrance. So it's that document of the um, five points of how they disagreed with uh, Reformed theology. The following year, there was a counter-Remonstrance published. Um, it it kind of, I don't think it really amounted to much. Um, but between 1611 and 1618, this thing was really growing. And you know, one um, book that I read said that essentially they were on the, rink, uh, on the, the brink of civil war because it was really causing a rift in, in the people, you know, um, between the, the Arminians and the, and the Calvinists. So in 1618, the Synod, uh, Synod of Dort, they get together and they begin to discuss this issue. And then in 1619, um, they published the, their findings and the, the Senate concluded. All right. So let's talk a little bit. Any questions so far? No? Okay. So let's talk a little bit about exactly. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. I don't think so, because that would have been over in England. Um, there might have been some cross-pollination. I'm unaware of, like, any real... Do you have any... No? Okay. Yeah. Um, there might have been a handful of people that were um, interacted with both, but I don't, I don't really think there's a connection there. All right, so what we're going to do is talk about, if you remember... What year was it? Uh... 1592, um, you know, he was teaching Malachi and then Romans, and there was a, um, it, it caused controversy. And so let's talk a little bit, uh, and there was many passages that, that were in conflict. I'm just going to kind of highlight one here so we have an idea of kind of the, the way he, he thought. Um, and really kind of the punchline is the way he interpreted uh, the last verse, which is verse 13. Um, the problem is with Romans is you keep having this little word called for, for this and then for this and then for that. And, and so it's like you don't want to jump right in the middle of something because then you have no concept, context. So we got to go all the way back to six to really, uh, to, to really, I think, frame everything out. So Romans 9, 6 through 13 says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all, um, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, um, though they were not yet born and hadn't, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, so we're going to kind of drill down on that last verse real quick. So as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But, you know, remember the context, okay? So what does this verse mean? Specifically, who does God love slash hate? No? What's the answer? No. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. <laughs> oh, well played. Yes, sir. He loves those that he chooses to love. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. There's um, there's there's an aspect of you don't merit his love. It's not like he. Look forward, and it's a it's it's a divine eternity thing, right? It's not like he looked forward, said, "Wow, Jeremy's going to be a really good guy. I think I'm going to love him." Right? Okay. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Oh, 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 yes, yes, sir. Another translation of the hate is reject. Okay. Yeah. So he 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 loved um, uh, Jacob, and he rejected rejected yeah, Esau. I mean, okay. that's just another yeah. Way of thinking about okay. It. Okay. Good. Yes, ma'am. By, by the way, um, love you guys, but you're at the end of the line. I hope that's okay. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Okay. So who inherits the promises of the covenant and the promises of salvation? Okay. Now, the reason I ask this is because Arminius interpreted Jacob and Esau as classes of people. The former, uh, Jacob, were those who seek righteousness by faith, and the latter of the, uh, are those who seek it by works. Okay? So he looked at it and said, this is not actually talking about iffy. This is not talking about Jacob and Esau. This is talking about um, cla strictly classes of people, those who would believe in faith, and those who would try to work their way to the kingdom of God. Okay? So what do you think about that, that interpretation? Anybody got any problems with it? Well, even if it's written about Abraham, Isaac, uh -huh. Great, great answer. Um, that's why I included the context, right? He talks about Abraham, he talks about Isaac, he talks about um, Sarah and Rebecca. He's talking about these historical people, right? It's a good point. 
Then he, he gets into, um, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, right? So this is putting his good will on display, and that's kind of the point of the passage, right? Now, there is an element, actually, I'll let, um, I'm going to let Stephen kind of, he actually teaches hermeneutics, which is the what? Study of biblical interpretation, all right? So he actually teaches that. Um, so do you have any, you want to make any comments about what we're talking about here? He says Jacob and he says Esau. So who's he talking about? Jacob and Esau. Right. Uh, to give Jacob Arminius a, his d- day in court, so to speak. I do think that you can say that there's there's a group aspect here because of who Jacob is and who Esau is. And Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. And where does this whole chapter start? But like it says up there in the quote in verse 6, and even before that, like he starts this whole discussion because he's concerned about his brothers, the Israelites, right? The, the Jews. What, what's going to happen to them? Why don't they believe, right? Paul is writing this when he's, he's watching most of his fellow Jews reject Jesus, the Messiah. And so chapters 9 through 11 are specifically to address that, like, why is it that so many of the Jews who should have believed in Christ the Messiah have rejected him? And he's explaining that. And so, yes, it is individual, because they're all individuals who have individually rejected, but there's a corporate sense in which Israel, as a corporate body, has rejected as well. And that's kind of what he's... He's trying to answer both questions at the same time. Excellent. Good. See, and, and I hope you guys heard all of that, because I am not even going to try to repeat it. Randy, you got a point? Or comment? I just noticed that if you look through the whole passage, every person that's mentioned is, is in the, the bloodline of Christ. Right, right. And Esau's not. Right. So I just thought that was you know, kind of telling that whatever he's trying to interpret, Esau's not there. Right. So when he's talking about who he loved and who he hated, right. one's in the line and one's not. Right. Yeah, so, so good point. So I don't know if y'all heard that, but um, Randy makes the observation that Pretty much everybody that's mentioned, or not pretty much, everybody that's mentioned is in the kind of the line of Christ except for Esau. And so he's kind of, kind of out there. Yes, sir? Yeah, so I was, I was just looking to see if um, you guys could put it real quick. Uh-huh. Saying the okay. Okay. Right. Okay, so it brings up the, the, the thought of there is a separation, very important separation aspect with Esau. So there's uh, Jacob coming into communion with God, there's, and then there's the uh, Esau who is, is separated, and there's some um, kind of a, a, a picture there. Um, so, yes, sir. Right. Right. Kind of irre- irre- regardless of what the rest of the passage and the verses 
Absolutely. So like Stephen points out in hermeneutics, as we're, as we're interpreting the Bible, context is king. Because you can say some, some you can say all kinds of things. Um, for example, the, the, the Bible actually says there is no God. Did you know that? It's actually in the Bible. And so you can quote the Bible. You can get a Bible verse on a T-shirt or a tattoo or whatever you want to do. And it says, uh, verse such and such, um, there is no God. But of course, you have to put dot, dot, dot in front of it and after it because the whole thing says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay? So if you just take that one little piece in isolation, you can actually uh, communicate the opposite of what it is that the Bible is actually saying, okay? So with this, <clears throat> I, I, I give, um, kind of like Stephen, I give Arminius a little bit of grace because he, there is a, an aspect of, of, of where this is talking about a group setting, but it's not talking, but at the same time, it is talking where, where he, he falls short is two, two things. One is he completely denies that it's talking about individuals, okay? So he, he misses the point there. But then at the same time, there is an aspect of a more of a collective um, view there. And so it's like he's kind of partially right, but by not, not denying part of the truth, what does he do? He actually lands on very, very bad theology, and he misses the whole point. Because what he was saying, his claim uh, is that individual salvation through divine election is not in view. And that is an absolutely erroneous, heretical conclusion. Completely eliminates the context of Romans 8. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, it rips that verse out and... Um, and, and ignores everything before it. All right. So that's the kind of thing that we're, we're talking about here. So he, overall, he differed with the Reformed faith on several points. He believed, one, God does not extend the saving grace only to those whom he predestines uh, salvation, uh, but to all. He gives us, he grants us saving grace to everybody. The will of man is not so bound. He also taught that the will of man is not so bound in sin that he has no ability to act for good, but rather he is able to take a step toward God out of a spark of good within him. And actually, his followers would, would disagree with him here, kind of. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. God does not sovereignly choose or elect some people for salvation out of all who receive the just condemnation for their sin, but rather God elects those whom he has foreseen will believe. So what he does is the way, the modern way of, of wording this is that God looks down through the corridors of time and sees that Stephen is going to believe in Jesus, trust in Christ for his, his sins, and so back before time began, he elects Stephen based on Stephen's future, um, uh, future profession of faith. Okay? It, it just it, it doesn't work. Um, mankind is not totally, he also taught that mankind is not totally disabled by sin, 
to merit the favor with God. And mankind is not fully depraved. All right. Now, the remonstrance, remember the remonstrance is that document, right? The remonstrance presented objections to the Belgic Confession. Now, the Belgic Confession was, you know, how we talk about the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Dutch Reformed Church um, uh, followed the, the, the Belgic Confession, okay? It's, and they're close on a lot of stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah. The remonstrance presented objections to the Belgic Confessions and the teachings of Calvin and his followers on several points. One, conditional election. They taught that God's election was based on his knowing whether they would accept or reject Christ by their own free will. Two, universal atonement. Jesus died for all men and for every man. He died for everybody, every single person, so that he has obtained for them, he has actually obtained for them, by his death on the cross, redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So he actually, Jesus, what he's teaching is that, or what they're teaching is that Jesus obtained forgiveness of sins for everybody in the world, yet that no one actually enjoys this forgiveness of sins except the believer. And so the idea is that Jesus is putting a gift out there, okay, and then Brian has to reach out and take the gift, okay? But Jesus put the gift out there for him to take, okay? And so everybody in the world has their, their sins forgiven, their, the the gift is sitting right in front of them. They just got to reach out and take it. They taught total. They did teach total depravity, kind of. Um, taken in isolation, um, their view on this was actually pretty consistent with um, with what the reform teachings were. The problem is that would be section three. The problem is when you get to the next session section, they actually contradicted what was in the previous section. And, and so, um, so anyway, they're kind of inconsistent on that one. And then resistible, Chris, yes, ma'am. Didn't you say in the last slide on page four that there was anything in total depravity? This is, um, these are the remonstrants. These are his followers. So they're just making up new stuff off of his new stuff? Well, it, it was, uh, it's close, but it's a slight deviation. So I wanted to teach what he taught, and then I wanted to teach what they taught. So they're, they're, they're close. It's, it's pretty close. Um, so they taught that the Holy Spirit's work is not effectual in that, and what that means is that um, God can say you're, you know, God can, the Holy Spirit can work in your heart, but then you can do, deny that, um, that work. And then unsecure grace, um, a person can actually lose their salvation. So you can be saved at one, one point and then lose it potentially the next day. Now, I didn't put this here for you to read this, okay, <laughs> obviously. Um, what I wanted to do is just kind of show, uh, again, I don't want to get caught, too caught up in word counts or anything like that, but this is the first paragraph of the five articles. Um, so there's five paragraphs that the remonstrance produced, okay? This is article one. Um, you can see it's a, it's a reasonable paragraph. Um, it's the kind of thing that we're used to when we talk about this sort of thing, and it's actually talking about divine election, okay? Um, this is the table of contents for the response 
to that, okay? And then each of these articles um, is, mo most of them are at, are at least as long as that. So they were very thorough uh, in terms of their response to what the remonstrants taught. Um, I, I kind of think of it as the remonstrants threw a grenade and they responded with the nuclear option, right? So there are, there are um, four articles, and we'll get to why there's four in just a second, um, but there's four articles, I'm, I'm sorry, four articles, four sections, there's four sections, um, and each section follows the same pattern. Now we're getting into why, one of the reasons why I love this confession so much. Um, they begin with the, the first, um, the first article, or the first article of each confession, or each section, is a Catholic, and what I mean by that is universal uh, statement. Okay, so in this case, it's on God's right to condemn all people. Okay, it's, and what they do is they start with something that every Catholic, Lutheran, and these days Methodist, well, maybe not Methodist, um, uh, <laughs> Bible, Bible church person, who, it, it's a, it's a statement that all of Orthodox Christianity is going to begin with. It's kind of common ground, if you will. Okay? Then what they do is they build up, step-by-step, um, step, a very methodical approach to building up to the actual Reformed doctrine. And then they summarize that Reformed doctrine, the, distinct, the distinction between the Reformed doctrine and, and the other stuff. Then they go through implications and applications of the doctrine, and then they talk about the rejection of errors that were found in the, the, uh, the remonstrance document, right? So they follow this pattern through all four, all four sections. So it's very thorough, okay? Now, slide is called the pastoral intent of the canons. And I, I, that's one of the reasons I love this so much. The canons were written for the people, not just academics, okay? It's, it does not use technical language. It's written in such a way as to we can all read this and follow it, and it doesn't, like, blow our minds. You don't have to have a thesaurus next to us in order to, to understand what it's saying. Um, each section is self-contained, right? So if you, wanna, if you are interested in studying something about the perseverance of the saints, you don't have to read the whole thing. You can just read the section on the per perseverance of the saints, Okay. Um, each section contains positive statements followed by rejections. Um, a lot of times we tend to focus on what we don't believe without saying what we do believe or vice versa. So what they do is they say, here's what we believe. Then they get into, here's why we disagree with what the Arminians were saying. Each section also contains specific elaborations and applications. So you can have all these little questions, what ifs and stuff like that. They answer a lot of those. Each, each section addresses the justice of God and the fault of man. And it's so critical. They, they're constantly looking back to um, the justice of God in, in all of this. Uh, three of the four sections contain assurance in relation to the doctrine. So they talk about assurances, and it's very comforting, right? Again, it's a pastoral document. They want people to come away with this with confidence um, and understanding, all right, so far so good? Okay. Sorry I'm talking so much. I normally like to ask a lot more questions, but 
this, this one kind of isn't real conducive to that. So now what about Tulip, okay? Who's heard of Tulip? Yep, good, I'm basically everybody, all right. All right, so Tulip stands for, um, it's what we typically know, um, it stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. When we think of this, we think of this as what? The five points of Calvinism. Um, but that acronym did not exist until the early 20th century. Okay, so it's like 300 and something years removed. Um, again, and if you think about the, the, the acronym is actually in English, not, not in Dutch. And so they wouldn't have had this, this acronym back then. The acronym does not summarize the Reformed faith nor Calvinism as a whole. This is strictly talking about um, the acronym is, is we, we, think, we think of, of, we often think of TULIP as the quote-unquote five points of Calvinism, but it's one small section of an entire system of theology, okay? So that is a horrible, honestly, a horrible label for, um, for that acronym, um, there's much, much, much more in, in um, much more involved than just the, those those five points. Um, if you really want to, if you really want to understand the the Reformed faith, then read the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, Tulip does not help. Uh, does it does help remind us of the basic ideas behind the five points of the Remonstrance, though? Because the five points of, uh, of the tulip were, were a response to the five points of the remonstrance, which came from the Arminians. But the order has changed a little bit. Tulip begins with man's inability. Dort begins with divine election. So what I mean by that is I remember several years ago, I saw R.C. Sproul teaching on tulip, right? Begins with what? Total depravity. He said the whole... Um, the whole concept in, in that teaching revolves around or begins with the inability of man, right? It begins with uh, the fact that the totality of man's being is, um, uh, is depraved and, and sinful, okay? That's, that's your starting point. From that, you get into unconditional election, that sort of thing. What Dort does, um, the original document, um, it begins with divine election, Okay, begins with divine election. And the, the difference is, Tulip begins with the shortcomings of man, and Dort begins with the sovereignty of God. Okay, and I just, I like that other, that, that starting with God, I, I, we always, I think, want, want to do that. Um, the canons of Dort contain four sections responding to the five points. Okay. Um, and what that is is sections three and four are combined um, into one because of the, in, um, the inconsistency uh, that was created in the articles of, of the remonstrance. Cool. And that's it. Okay. Um, look, I know this was a bit dry today, okay? But I'm hoping that um, studying what we've studied and understanding this information is gonna help us as we go forward 
um, and actually looking at the, the various um, biblical arguments that are found in the Canons of Dort. Okay? This is a, it's a wonderful document. It's a wonderful way to really understand the, the, the doctrines of grace as found in the, um, in the Bible. Okay? And so what I really highly recommend is between now and next week, if you could read um, the, the first section of, of the Canons of Dort. Um, it's available online. Um, if you're not sure where to go, you can shoot me an email if you want. Um, I'd be happy to, to, to shoot you a link. Um, you know, there, but there's all kinds of, uh, of um, translations on the, on the web. Um, but it's, a, it's really a wonderful document, and there's, there's two reasons why I think it's important to, to go through this. One is, as a part of our, what we believe um, here at Trinity, the, the biblical teaching around salvation and the doctrines of grace, we believe that this is a really good summary of it. Okay? It's a very, very good summary of it. And it uh, helps us to understand not only the doctrines themselves, but, but how they were, how and why they were articulated. And it gets rid of a lot of the kind of the baggage, the folk theology and things of that nature. Okay? Um, when we think about, you know, um, talking about divine election, okay, we often respond with, in talking about divine election, and one of those short little snippet, you know, a couple of sentences or a couple of bullet points, like they did in the articles of the remonstrance. Remonstrance, sorry. But when you read the canons of Dort, you understand everything in context. It begins with God's prerogative in condemning all people. And then it builds a case. It gives you a complete picture and, build, and, and it's, it's kind of a watertight um, case to be made for, for this doctrine, right? The second reason why I think it's important is because when people first hear about this, when they're, you know, in earnest in any way, um, when people fir first hear about this, there's a lot of misgivings. Somehow they think that God is unjust. Well, you know, the Canons of Dort actually address that. It addresses all kinds of objections. It addresses a lot of things. And it points to Scripture the whole way through. Okay? So I think that this is an important document. I would ask that you know, everybody read the first section. We'll get into the, you know, the other three sections you know, in the sub subsequent weeks. Um, but I do think it would be beneficial. Okay? Um, so next week, we're going to kick it off with the first section, which is talking about divine election. Um, we got time for one question. Any questions? No. Why are you <laughs> well, because it's it's a weapon that you shoot. No. Uh, well, canon is a is a word that means rule or law, right? And it's the canons of Dort. Dort being the city, uh, and then canon being the, the rules or the laws that, that, that came out of this, this committee. It's the, the, their findings, basically. So, cool. Thanks for trying to trip me up. I appreciate it, Stephen. All right, Randy, you want to close us?
Father, we praise you for this day, God. We thank you that uh, you are holy and that you are sovereign in every way. Thank you, God, for this teaching that Fred put together. I pray that uh, it would edify your church, and Lord, that it would give us some uh, uh, some fuel and, and some opportunity to, to be able to speak intelligently why we believe what we believe. Uh, God, we pray that you would bless this service in our church. Uh, may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you know what? I'm sorry. Bear with me one more minute. I want to throw out one, one quick thing. Um, I talked about, um, <clears throat> I, I talked about, you know, Jan and I starting to go to church in, in 2004. And prior to that, you know, we were blank slates. You know, we'd been to church, or at least I'd been to church maybe a dozen times in my life. Um, but I remember, um, and then about four months later, I started um, going to Bible college at um, co the College of Biblical Studies. And I remember, I don't know, I'd probably been there maybe a year, six months, a year, something like that. And we had been talking about this, this concept that we're going to talk about, you know, divine revelation. Um, before the world was created, God sovereignly elected certain folks. And I really, really, really struggled with that because I kept thinking about the innocent aborigine um, in the middle of Australia that has never even heard the, the name of Jesus, and how, how could he be condemned, okay? And so I, I was really stumbling over this, and then I remember sitting in, my, um, in class, and um, you know, the rest of my classmates hadn't showed up yet. I was sitting there alone, and I remember opening um, Ephesians 2, and pretty much the, the doctrine is laid out there, you know? Um, it, the you got to do gymnastics to get around it. You really do. And so I remember closing my Bible, slamming it down on the table, going, no, it can't be true. I, I just didn't want to accept it because, again, in my mind, I was judging God, and it, he would have been in, un, in unjust in, in something like this being true, right? So... After I thought through it a little bit, it probably took me a week or two to, to kind of think it through. And then I said, you know what? I know Jesus is Lord. I know he's good. I know he's just. I know he's love. I know he's holy too, right? So there's a lot about him. So you know what? I'm going to set this to the side, and I'm going to learn more about him. And then I'll come back to it and see how it goes. And so what I did was I probably spent about a year studying the attributes of God, love, wrath, holiness, justice, mercy, grace, omniscience, omnipotence, all these different things, right? Once I did that, and then I came back to this doctrine, I'm like, well, no, duh, right? It made all the sense in the world, right? And so, again, I talk about doctrines being marbles in a drawer. You know, we think of we tend to think of these different doctrines as, as marbles in a drawer where they don't have a whole lot to do with each other. They kind of bump into every, you know, one another every once in a while. But in reality, they are a cohesive truth. And when you, the more you penetrate this, the more beautiful it is. And now I actually, I love this doctrine and I wouldn't want it any other way. And we're going to talk about why later. Um, primarily because it's true, but also it's, um, it's a relief, I guess you could say. So anyway, love you guys. Um, we'll see you in 20 minutes.